several years ago. A desire was born in Kristen in my heart to adopt. God had blessed us with, um, I think, three at the time. Beautiful boys. Now we have four boys. But our heart's desire was to be able to adopt. And so we've been thinking and praying about that and looking at the timing of everything. Looked at a lot of different um, venues for that. International adoption. And, and then this year we'd gotten real serious about foster adoption. And so we were um, going through that long process which was good, looking forward to um, potentially being in a, a spot where we could uh, have a child who, who needed a home, who the state, in a sense, was caring for, come into our home, maybe a baby even, and then uh, possibly, potentially a, a adopt. So went through that, and uh, we're actually through the entire process, almost completely done. I think we had one last thing left to do. And then in... September, a couple months ago, we met Lori. And Lori is a woman who's become very special to, to our family in many different ways. Actually, the first time I met Lori was at the baptism event on September 24th. Um, she was there, so just three months ago. And we got to know Lori, and Lori got to know us. And she was due to have a baby on December 20th but I knew that she wasn't going to be able to um, provide this child with what she wanted this child provided with. And so she sat in our living room one afternoon and asked us if we would be willing to adopt her baby. And uh, we did not think about it. <laughs> we said, of course, absolutely. We had tried to have a girl. <laughs> we had to import a girl. It just didn't happen. Uh, this little girl is a dream come true. So last Friday night, one week ago, Avery Grace was born. And she came home with us on Monday. Our little daughter. So I wanted you to meet her. Don't clap, please. I don't want her to. <laughs> she has, I think, like 47 bows. <laughs> I don't think I'm exaggerating. She came. Kristen has not put her down. That was the first time right there. We went on a date. She was Avery was with us, of course. We were excited about that. We do an annual Christmas date, and we did that, and she came with us. She let me watch her the other day for three hours, yeah, texting me every five minutes. <laughs> I just held her the whole time. She was asleep, and it was, uh, it was great. It's very different. Some of you know. I'm used to boys, and this just feels different. It's great. It's wonderful. I'm excited. Um, this, there's, there's so many things that I could say, but um, this little girl uh, literally could not have come into our home if our church family did not 
come around us and make everything possible. So uh, some of you just worked tirelessly and many of you uh, helped and, and contributed and, and made, made this possible. So this girl, I pray, is going to have a long, blessed life. And uh, many of you can know that you had a direct hand in that. So thank you so much. I'm talking quiet because I was holding a baby. <laughs> I think I'm even going to preach different now. <laughs> Let me pray. So I don't know what I'm doing here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this day that you've made. I want to thank you for calling us as your people to gather together every week for worship. Thank you for uh, your inspired word that you have given to us so that we can hear from you. I pray that you would help me to preach faithfully tonight, to say things that are true to your word in accordance with your word and the Holy Spirit, that you would go out with my words and bring impact and change in hearts that are listening. Give you thanks for our church, for the people who've come to know Jesus here, the people who have come to know Jesus more deeply here. We thank you for all the, the children that you've blessed us with, which you say are a reward from you, and so we are a rewarded people. Irrevocable rewards, as Romans 11 teaches us. So thank you, God, for your goodness. And even without these blessings and this place and this warmth and these children and each other, God, you could take all of this and we still have Jesus. We are so thankful for Christ. We are so thankful for the cross and the way you have reconciled all of us to you. Thank you so much, God. May our lives be a reflection and an outpouring of our gratitude for what you have done to reach us. We love you and give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our last sermon in the book of 1 John. A few more verses. John writes here what is perhaps um, the letter with the most affection poured out in your entire Bible. John loves the people he's writing to. He calls them over and over again his beloved. He calls them over and over again his dear children. Some of your versions say, my version says little children. And that's not a demeaning thing that he's saying. He's not being condescending. He considers them his spiritual children. Many of them probably came to faith and came to know Jesus under his ministry. And so he loves them and he, he cares about how they turn out. And he cares about where they spend their eternity. And he cares about whether or not they have joy in this life. And whether or not they're in good fellowship with each other and with God. And whether they're assured uh, of salvation and, and, and are going to God in confidence and, and know that they, 
they will go to God in, in confidence. And so he's, he's writing to them this, this very affectionate letter. John is, is a, he brings an amazing testimony. He was, he was best friends with Jesus. He was part of that inner three, Peter, James, and John. And, and he's called the beloved disciple of Jesus. So he was there for everything, called early on, um, followed him around in his ministry, he, he, he listened to Jesus preach. Can you imagine that? He saw Jesus perform miracles. He watched uh, as Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before He was crucified. He, he stood. He was one of the only ones to stand fearlessly at the foot of the cross. He watched Jesus die. He welcomed and received His mother, Jesus' mother Mary, as His own mother to care for her. Uh, he was the first one in the tomb after Jesus was resurrected. He, he, he walked with Him in his, in his resurrected state. He saw His wounds. He, he watched Him ascend into heaven. So, I don't know about you, but I want to hear from a guy like that. I want to hear what John has to say, and I want to know what John thinks is, is important. And when he writes this, this wonderful letter that we've been reading together, I want to know how he ends his letter. Well, what, what, what are the, the lasting words that he wants to leave imprinted on us? And when we do a sermon series, right? We, te- we do this expositionally. We go through books of the Bible and we go verse by verse by verse. And, and there's always something for me that's sad when we... When we close that book of the Bible and we move on to the next one because I, just, I really enjoy just reading through uh, one of these books or one of these letters together and hearing what God has to say through this, through this writer. And so I get sentimental about it. When we get down to the end here, I really want to dig in and say, okay, John, this week I was just remembering, what, what have you taught us? What have, you, what have you said to us? And now, what is it that you want to leave us with? So we're going to read the last verses. Let me read the first four verses, if you can remember way back 20 weeks ago. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how John introduced his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. We've seen Him, we've touched Him, we've heard from Him. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too, may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he said at the beginning of his letter that he's going to be talking about Jesus. He's going to be giving the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and and what Jesus has, has done. And he expected that that gospel was going to have an effect, telling it again, was going to have an effect 
on his friends that he's very concerned about. Remember, false teachers had, had risen up from within this church. They stopped believing the gospel. They started adding to it and taking away from it and believing other things. And they left. And these were, these were leaders, it sounds like, in the church. They were at least respected teachers. And so this just sent the whole church into a bit of a tailspin. And people are, are questioning their own salvation. And, and are we really Christians? And, 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 and who's right? Is it John or these false teachers? And... And there was no joy anymore. And so John thinks, what do I need to tell them? What am I going to say in this letter to them? And he thinks, of course, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to take them back to that which they heard from the beginning. Nothing new. No cutting edge doctrine. I'm going to just go back to what I told them before. And I'm going to beat it into their heads again. The good old gospel. And the change that he was hoping that that would produce in these people, that you hear him talk about in the very beginning, those first four verses, is he, he wanted them to have joy. He wanted their attitude to be affected. He wanted them to be happy in Christ. Not only did he want to see them have a, a change in attitude, but he wanted the the activity of their life to change, become more obedient, to pursue holiness and godliness. And not only that, he wanted them to have assurance, assurance of salvation. And these are the things that happen for us. When we hear the gospel over and over again, and we, we hear about Jesus over and over again, which we need to hear about over and over and over again, Jesus is the means to us having an attitude of joy. There is no joy in anything else. That's why John says, I'm writing this so that our joy may be complete. All of us. But we need to get to Jesus in order to have an attitude that's going to be of joy. There is no obedience and faithfulness in your life apart from Jesus. And so he writes that they would stop sinning, that they would be obedient. And as well, when you hear Jesus and when you hear the gospel and you're brought into fellowship again with God and with other Christians, assurance of your salvation. Because there aren't many things that, that, that deaden your Christian life more than not having any assurance. When that confidence is taken and oh, I just don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't know if I'm a believer, that's just like being stuck in thick mud. You don't go anywhere. You don't love anybody. You don't obey. Your prayer life goes down the drain. Your joy is gone. When there's no assurance and confidence in what Jesus has done because you're not believing what Jesus has done. And so he's trying to remedy all of that. He wants to bring the joy back. He wants to bring the obedience back. And he wants to bring the assurance back. And so he gives them all these tests and said, listen, are you believing the gospel? Are you obeying the gospel? Are you, are you doing these things? If you are, then be assured of your salvation and have confidence for that day when you're going to stand before Jesus and live like you have confidence of where you're going. As well, even now, we looked at last week, have confidence to go before God in prayer. And so we're not surprised that he ends his letter 
with deep words of assurance. He says, we know three times to close this out. We know something. We know something. We know something. And the hope is that what we know will bring joy, will bring obedience, will bring assurance. I pray that will be its effect on us as a church. Be a more joyful people, a more obedient people, a more assured people because of our time sitting under the teacher of the beloved disciple of Jesus, John. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We'll go one verse at a time. We'll break up the verses, especially verse 18 here. We know three things. First, we know that everyone who has been born of God. So something is true for everyone who has been born of God. So the first thing he says here is that something has happened to a Christian. We've looked at this in weeks past. Something has, if you're a Christian, something dramatic has happened to you. You did not happen to God, God happened to you. You didn't do something that prompted God, God prompted you. You didn't do something that triggered a response from God, God did something that triggered a response from you. But it's God's work, it's God's initiative, and and what he says over and over again, John, in his gospel account and in his letters, is that that something that has happened to a Christian is that you have been born again. Or you have been born of God. Or you have been reborn. Regenerated. It's like a, a brand new start. Brand new life. We see something beautiful, right? When we look at new life. I just, I just held her up here. Those of you who are parents have experienced this. Many of you who aren't parents have experienced this. You just, you just look at a baby. And what's the word? Christian, not a Christian. Religious, not religious. The word that people use is miracle. This is just a miracle. How is this even, how is this possible? So you look and you see this new life and we're amazed by it. And God says what has happened to you is new life. Like that, again. You're now in the, as a new believer, in the infancy of your reconciled relationship with God. And your cry is faith. So first he's saying that there is something that happens to us. It was an action of God. We have been born of Him. John 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What happened to you? 
It wasn't something that happened because of your will or your desire. It's because of God and His action and His work and His will. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 9.16 right, says that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on the will of God. And Isaiah 42.7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The way God describes what He did with you when you became a Christian is being born of God is you were given ears to hear. So you didn't hear it before. I mean, you heard it, but you didn't hear it. It didn't really sink. That happened. And He says that you were in a dungeon. And God rescued you from the dungeon. When you were reborn, you were in a dungeon, in a pit of darkness. And God broke into the dungeon, slayed the dragon, snatched you, and took you home. Wow! That's what has happened to you, Christian. Everyone that that has happened to we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So there is a result of that action from God. The action from God was you're born of Him, and now the result of that in your life is that Christians do not keep on sinning. There are no exceptions here to this cause and effect. This is always the result of being born again. So there's this debate over whether there's disobedient Christians and there's obedient Christians. It was the lordship salvation debate that was really big in the, in the 80s. Where it's like, well, there's two different tiers. And there's coming forward and saying the, the prayer of faith and getting in the door. But then at some point in your Christian life, you have to say, okay, Jesus, you're Lord and I'm going to obey you. That is not a second experience. When, when we baptize people here, we say, okay, you're baptized in the name of Jesus, and we've asked you, is Jesus your Savior, your treasure, and your what? Your Lord. Is He the one telling you what to do? And if you're like, well, no, I'm not there yet in my Christianity. <laughs> then we're not there yet with baptism. We'll say, let's wait until He's Lord. And we'll sit down and, and go through that and say, no, that, that's not how this works. He's either your Lord or He's not. So that is a result of being born again. As John says, we work through that in chapter 3, is that a Christian does not keep on sinning. And what he means by that, the tense there, is a Christian does not continually commit habitual, persistent sin. So a Christian falls into sin, but a Christian does not walk in sin. Those are some scary messages for a lot of you. She thought, well, no, I'm the kind of Christian that's walking in sin. And John's response was, 
you may not be a Christian. There is a difference between keep on sinning, which a Christian does not do, and seeing your sin, and hating your sin, and confessing your sin, and fighting your sin. That is not keep on sinning. And John says that the result of being born of God is that you don't keep on sinning. You don't walk in sin. You're not content in sin. When you're found out, you confess. You don't make excuses. You don't deny it. You don't bring out circular reasoning. You just you fess up and say, with a broken heart, I've sinned. And you repent. And you turn. And you see it. And you hate it. And you're disgusted with it. And you don't like that. You want to turn from it. This is a Christian. Not one who comfortably keeps on sinning. John Calvin, right, says that sin does not reign in a Christian because the Holy Spirit does not allow it to flourish. The Holy Spirit does not allow it to flourish. Remember 1 Corinthians 3? We are a temple. Who resides in this temple? The Holy Spirit resides there in you as a Christian. And He is not pals with consistent habitual sin. He doesn't allow it. So if there's consistent habitual sin and there's no seeing and hating and confessing and turning, there may not be the Holy Spirit. Do we say that in love? Do we love you if we just kind of go along with the delusion you might have? Say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't, don't question your salvation. Don't make your calling and election sure. Don't examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But the Bible actually calls us to do those very things. So he goes on, he's saying, we know this. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So now he says that the Christians don't keep on sinning, at least part of the why that Christians do not keep on sinning is because Jesus is protecting them. So if you have some sort of victory over sin in your life, the reason you have some sort of victory over sin in your life is because God is protecting you from the evil one. You should be really grateful and thankful. Not, you know, pat each other on the back. Which we want to do. And which can be okay. But we must understand that foundationally, according to 1 John 5, John says, here's what you know. Anyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning. The reason he doesn't keep on sinning is because he who was born of God. And he's talking about Jesus there. So, 
We are born of God, and Jesus was born of God, the only begotten Son of God. Now, we're born of God in different ways, but here's what John is saying. The same power that caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of Mary, and the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, that's the sense that Jesus is born of God. That same power is the same power that changed our heart and is now working in us. And it's that same power, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is the same power now that protects you from the evil one. What kind of protection is he talking about? He says, this is the length of the protection that, that Satan, that's the evil one, does not touch you. Literally, he cannot lay a finger on you. This is what John wants us to be assured of. Be assured that Satan, the evil one, the arts deceiver, he cannot lay a hand on you, and it's because Jesus is keeping him away from you. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This protection from Jesus, this is what we pray for when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is Jesus' prayer there that He asks us to model? What is that based on, deliver us from evil? That is founded on this truth that we're reading about right here. Remember last week? Confidently go to God and ask Him for the things that He has promised to do. God, deliver me from evil. What does 1 John 5 say? Jesus will not let the evil one touch you. So know that. Verse 19. We know, second time he uses that saying, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he just changed the way he was talking there. At first, we know that everyone who has been born of God, so he's talking about Christians, those people out there, but now he includes his readers and himself and says, we, we are those people. And I can say that to you, Veritas Church. Those of you who are believers, this is, this is we now. This isn't just Christians and, and people out there. This is us. We know that we are from God, and what's the contrast? What about, what about those who are not born of God? And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he wants us to get and to be assured of how dramatic our salvation is from Satan here. And one way to do that is to describe to you just how bad off the world is in regards to Satan. 
And so if we get the picture of how involved Satan is in the world and in people's lives, if we get that, then we will appreciate and be more confident and assured when we hear, yeah, all of that, Jesus doesn't let him touch you. However, the that statement. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is the ruler of this world. He's in a powerful position. We'll read some more verses to put around that. But Satan is the ruler of this world. This world is an evil place to live. Now we're not doom and gloom. Because we have Christ. We have the gospel. And we have eternity. And we have good gifts while we're here. But those gifts are from God. The world is an evil place to live. And so what you have made clear in your Bible is that there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms right now. Only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Matthew 12, 26 and 28 makes this clear that Satan has a kingdom God has a kingdom. And if Satan casts out Satan, remember this passage, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Satan has a kingdom. That's all we're taking from that. Satan has a kingdom. Verse 28, two verses later. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Kingdom of Satan, kingdom of God. Or Colossians 1.13 puts it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So there is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of His beloved Son, and there is the kingdom of Satan, or the domain of darkness. And everyone is a resident in one of those kingdoms. And everyone belongs to one of those rulers. And everyone loves and endorses and worships one of those rulers. Satan or God. Now we want, to, we want like to invent all different sorts of kingdoms. So I mean, I'm not in the, the God kingdom. I'm not some, you know, I'm not really religious. I'm in the spiritual kingdom. I'm very spiritual. That's the kingdom of Satan. Well, I'm on this road that is kind of, it's in between. It's this little toll road. And I pay, and I do good things, and I'm on my way there, but I'm not there yet. And no, you've either crossed over from death to life, or you're in death, or the kingdom of Satan. There's uncomfortable black and white language that, that John uses. Listen to how this age is described. Galatians 1.4 and we're reading, okay, what we, we, we want to get here is don't have these cheesy, corny, Christian subculture sunglasses on 
Okay, where everything is fine and everything's okay and everything's good. Don't do that. I mean, we want to, we want to create that kind of utopia where we're just in our little churches and in our small groups and listening to our certain music and we don't watch the news and we don't read the paper and this is where we go for art and entertainment and, and these are my friends and we just want to stay here and just say, well, there's some boogeymen out there and there's some monsters out there, but, but this right here, this is good people's. And we want to just shrink back and, and, just, and it's very easy for us to, to be oblivious to the fact that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so you're not going to get what you're delivered from. You're not going to get what you need to pray for. You're not going to get what your friends are bound to. You're not going to get the importance of the gospel and light shining through the darkness. You're not going to get that if you just think that everything is fine. Everything is not fine. It is not all good. It's all good. Don't worry. Be happy. No, worry! <laughs> Unless you're in Christ. Galatians 1.4 Who, this is Jesus, gave Himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or Ephesians 5.16 says, the days are evil. That's not typically how we describe the age we live in. You know, we're going to reflect on pretty soon here, 2011. Then we're going to look forward to 2012. And it, it is not going to be Another year in this present evil age. It's going to be a year to remember. And it's going to be, you know, a year of fulfilled resolutions. And it's going to be, you hear people say things like this, I, I, I feel it, this is going to be my year. God says this present evil age. I think we're supposed to feel that. I think we're supposed to be a little disgusted. I think we're supposed to be a little uneasy. I think we're supposed to get this and have well up within us a yearning for Jesus to come back. That's so why the disciples and the early church said, Come quickly, Jesus, come quickly. And Americans are like, Take your time. We're good because we don't get this present evil age. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's like something out of Star Wars. This is the cosmic powers and flying things. and Duh. It's creepy. Supposed to be creeped out by that. And turn to God. And turn to Him. 
And look to Him. Not ignore it. Put blinders on. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Have you heard this description of Satan? This title? In their case, the God of this world. The Bible calls Satan the God. That's a big word. He, it's a lowercase g. He doesn't get the capital G. But it still says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan is the God of this world. You live in a world where Satan is a God. Certainly, the implication is he has power in this world. Ephesians 2.2 In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's got to be his favorite, by the way. Prince of the power of the air. Another title for Satan. I don't even know what to do with that. Like there's just some power that is just out here. And over here. And it's just surrounding this power that is in the air. And Satan, he's the prince of it. This is the work he's about. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is not cute. That is freaky. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not nibble. We think Satan's a nibbler. It's a good t-shirt. He's a devourer. Matthew 13, verse 4 and 19. For the parable of the seeds and some of the seed, which is the gospel. Right, some of it falls in good soil. Some of it falls in different places. Some on the path. And the birds come up and snatch it. Well, who is the bird? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. The whole world. This is what that means when John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So now we get the significance of what Jesus is doing for us who have been born of God. It's this ruler and this kingdom that God has protected us from. So we've got to get it so that we know what He's protected us from. It is this ruler and this kingdom that God has defeated already. God has defeated it. God is defeating it, and God will defeat it. But He has. John 12, 31. Now, the time of Jesus, 
Now, that now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There is a sense in which Satan has already been cast out, he is being cast out, and he will be cast out. The decisive battle was won on the cross. The battle was turned. And the decisive battle was the cross. But that doesn't mean the war's over any more than in our country's history, the war has continued after the decisive battle was won. Because the enemy still struggles and, and, and fights and may even have some victories here and there, but the overall end victory has been sealed by some turning point. And the turning point for us as Christians was the cross. That's what Colossians 2.15 says about the cross. He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. One of the things that happened on the cross is that Satan was made to look like an idiot, which he is. He was put to open shame through the cross. As his plans and, and his will and his thinking that things were going his way as Christ was being crucified and everything was turned upside down and what Satan thought was his victory was his defeat. Open shame. Mocked by God and his angels. Satan mocked. Made fun of. by God and His plan that could not be thwarted. And Hebrews 2.14 says the same thing. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So the decisive battle has been won, but the war rages on. Which is why Jesus prays for us in John 17. Which is why He prays for us in this way. I do not ask, Jesus praying to God the Father, I do not ask that you take them, that's us. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus' prayer for you, that God would keep you from the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, God is keeping you from the evil one. Answering the prayer of Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus. 1 John 4.4 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. So these, these verses, they should, they should define our worldview. This should be our worldview. That there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of good and the kingdom of evil, very basically. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom belonging to the evil one. There is no third category. And Christians who are born of God are in the kingdom of God. And if you are a Christian and born of God and in the kingdom of God, 
Here is one thing that Jesus is doing for you. He is protecting you from the evil one. Satan and his influence and his powers and his dominion. And specifically, the way he is protecting you is that he does not even let Satan touch you. So there is a there is a closeness and an intimacy and an influence that the evil one has with people and had with you. And that intimacy and that influence and that power that he had with you has been stopped. And it was nothing you did. It was all God. And Jesus, your big brother, stands now between you and the evil one. John Stott said, Satan does not touch the Christian, but the whole world lies in his grasp. You see the comparison that John is making. Or David Smith, on the child of God, the evil one does not so much as lay his hand. The world lies in his arms. A great argument, by the way, against the teaching that Christians can be possessed by Satan. Which is not true. There, there is an influence, clearly, that evil can have and Satan and his army can have that we need to be cautious of and, and keep ourselves from and prayerful about. There, there is an influence that can happen, but know this, Satan will never, ever, ever, ever be allowed to lay a finger on you as a Christian. And be thankful to God for delivering you from that. We know that in verse 20. And here's the third one. We know that the Son of God has come. So he's ending with the Gospel. The Gospel that Jesus Christ came, lived, suffered, died, rose again in our place in order that sinful people could be reconciled to God. Jesus has come. The song we sing at Christmas and are going to celebrate next Sunday. Emmanuel. It means God with us. Jesus, God has come. Verse 20. We know this. That the Son of God has come what has been the result of Jesus Christ coming to this earth and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, we know God and we have communion with God. We know God because Jesus has come and given us understanding to know Him. And we have communion and relationship and reconciliation with God because we are in Jesus Christ. And the word He uses to describe God here says this is what's happened for us who've been born of God. 
you know, you are in fellowship with, you love, you are loved by the true God. Maybe a better word for us to get the meaning of what John is saying is real. The real God. The Scripture calls Him the one and only. John 17.3 And this is eternal life. That they, na- that they know You. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom You have sent. So we know this third deep assurance, we know because Jesus came and has given us understanding and has taken us in Himself, we know the one true God. The real God. The world is full of counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods. And there are many lying in the power of the evil one who serve these gods and love these gods and worship these gods and don't know any different. It's not that you're somehow smarter than they are or braver than they are or more intellectual than they are or more religious than they are. There's nothing for us to boast in ourselves about there. But the world is full of people following counterfeit gods and who do it believing that their way and their faith and their religion and their God is the real God. But He's not. And you, John says, by God's grace, you have come to know the real God. Which is why John's, what's been called, peculiar farewell. He ends this letter with a command. Which seems at first strange in his letter. And is not real common. But because you've come to know the real God, he ends by saying, So keep away from the false gods. Little children. He hasn't used that phrase in a while, but you knew he was going to end with it. He brings them in close and says, Little children. So I wind this down. I've assured you. Okay, here's God's part. That's what he just did. Here's what God's Heart. He is protecting you. He is keeping you so that you know the one real, true God. Be assured of that. Okay, little children, this is your part. This is your responsibility. Keep yourself from idols.
It's as if, isn't it, John knew that the false gods were just going to get cranked out at record speed for the next 2,000 years. And for his readers then, and his readers now, his caution is this. What he's saying? Don't exchange the real God. Don't exchange Him for idols. Don't exchange Him for other gods. Don't, don't bow down to other things. Don't worship other things. Don't, don't hope in other things. Don't ultimately desire other things. Don't ultimately find your joy in other things. Don't need other things. Don't think you must have other things. Don't replace the real God that you've come to know. Keep yourself away from idols. Don't give up the real God for something that is far less satisfying. Don't exchange God for something else that you think you need and you think you want. Because the reality is, it's not even going to come close to the joy and satisfaction you have in God. And he's already said at the beginning of his letter, I want our joy here to be complete. So I want you to have fellowship with God, because that's the only way this can happen. And the opposite of fellowship with God is fellowship with idols, and not the real, true God. So he winds his letter down, where he is assured and assured and assured. God is doing this. God is protecting you. God is keeping you. But don't think that takes you off the hook of your responsibility. Don't just sit back in your easy chair and say, God's got this. Let go. Let God. He throws all that garbage out the window and says, you little children, I love you. Keep yourself from idols. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. Don't love it. Don't pursue. Don't follow the things of this world. Commit yourself to holiness. Commit yourself to godliness. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not love the things of this world, he said in chapter 2. The lust of the eyes, the craving of sinful man. Don't pursue these things. Pursue God and keep yourself from idols. Ask yourself some questions. Identify the idols in your life right now. You say, well, I don't have, I don't, I don't have any idols. No, no, little, no little gold statues on my mantle. Yeah, it's been a long time since I carved something out of wood and sung a song to it. That's not what he's talking about. That may have been something that was more widely popular in a culture the Ten Commandments were written to. But the principle here is, the point here is do not exchange God and worship other gods. No one else is to get from you what God gets. And so you've got to look at your life and say, what do I organize my life around? Because that could be an idol if it's not God. Is it your work? Is it your hobbies? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? Is it your church? Anything other than God even good things, if they take His place, it's an idol. And John says, keep yourself from that. 
What do you organize your life around? What else must you have? What else do you need? What else has become your treasure? What else do you bow down to? What else brings you ultimate comfort? What else brings you ultimate joy? What else you find controls your emotions? These may be idols in your life. And John is saying, no, this has to go to God and this can't go anywhere else. No one else, no one, nothing else gets your trust. Nothing gets your obedience like this, your hope, your delight, no honor, obedience. This ultimately belongs to Jesus and nothing else. Keep yourself from that. Three ways, and we've mentioned these before, that idolatry is rampant in, in our day. One is taking good things and making them ultimate things. And it's still idolatry. If your spouse becomes the most important thing in your life, he or she is an idol. And there's work to be done. Your husband or wife is a good thing. I mean, it's not good for you to be alone. You'd be together. But you'd be careful. That good thing doesn't become ultimate. Oh, my children. If they did this, or if they didn't grow up to follow Jesus, or if something happened to one of them at a young age, or a cancer, or... See, this is one of my idols. I don't think I could handle it. I don't think I could stay faithful. I think I'd grow angry with my God. I've got an idol. That's a good thing. But it shall not be an ultimate thing. It becomes idolatry. Ourselves. That's the best idol. There's TV shows about this. We don't even call it something else. We don't even hide it. American Idol. <laughs> not, a, not American, pretty good singer. <laughs> American Idol. American graven image. <laughs> to be viewed by American spiritual adulterers. I mean, we don't even beat around the bush. But ourselves, we love to idolize ourselves. How does that work itself out in Christianity? I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. So who are you depending on for your salvation? For my salvation, I am depending on me. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And I have a life verse. And I don't celebrate Halloween. 
And I've never read a Harry Potter book. <laughs> and I have a crown of thorns tattooed on the small of my back. <laughs> the Jesus stamp. <laughs> no. only Facebook Bible verses and John Piper quotes. I know what TULIP stands for. I go to Truth Church. You don't even say Veritas, just Truth Church. Yeah, you get it? Okay. <laughs> I homeschool my kids. We make our own toothpaste. We're just we're just good down-home people. We do things that no one else does because we're just Jesus freaks. And we are in this category now because we are just so good. And, and, and you, you don't say that, but really it's just your little ladder that you're propping up to heaven. And all these things are your little rungs. And, and you sleep well at night, not because Jesus died for you, but because you had a good day. And you should sleep well when you have a bad day. Because Jesus Christ still died for you on the cross. Don't make yourself an idol. And the other thing we love to do is just really a, a modern day version of breaking the second commandment. We like to carve our own little God. And your God didn't inspire the whole Bible. Just inspired the parts that you like. And your God, it's amazing, He interprets verses the way you interpret verses. <laughs> like God has a commentary in heaven that you wrote. So cool. And He's a very accommodating God. And the sins that God takes real seriously are the things that you've happened to master. And the things you really struggle with are the sins that God just kind of sees as peripheral and not a big deal. And this is where God lands on the issues. And this is where God is politically. And this is where God is. And, and we define this God. And then, of course, of course you love that God. And of course you serve that God. You've made Him up. And since the beginning of time, people have been making up God. I mean, we know there's a God. You might as well just make Him up and have Him be a God that you want to worship. But you can't do that. There is a, John is saying, there is a real God. A real God. And you don't get to define Him or make up a definition. You have Him revealed to you in His Holy Word by His Holy Spirit. And you follow, you obey, you treasure that real God. And so John says, keep yourself away from idols. Two passages, I'll just read them in closing. Psalm 115, 3-8 Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. 
Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you serve a God who can't hear? Do you serve a God who can't talk? Do you serve a God who can't answer prayer? Do you serve a God who can't listen because He's an imaginary God that you've designed in your mind? He's not the real God. Turn to the real God and cry out for mercy from Him and you shall have it. And that's what Isaiah calls us to do in chapter 55, verses 1-3, through and I'll close with these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. And come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we all come to you now. If we are believers who struggle with what believers struggle with, remaining sin in our lives, may we come to You now and beat our chest and cry out for mercy again and know that we have it. May we come to You if we are not Christians. If we have not believed, may we now believe. May we come to You. May we stop drinking from the cesspool of this world and come to Your fountain and drink the water of life. May we as people who do not love You yet, believe You yet, cry out to You for mercy and know that we shall have it. As December 25th draws near, Father, keep us from idols. May we not enjoy the food and the gifts and the parties and the family and the warmth more than You. And may You be our foundational treasure. We have nothing and no one in heaven but You. 
You are in heaven our all-consuming joy. We will not in heaven even mourn over those friends we can't imagine not mourning for because we will be so consumed with the only one we have in heaven, you. So God, help us to treasure you like that now and to live lives that are devoted to you and not the things of this world. And may you work in and through us to continue to love others and to seek and to save that which is lost as we pour our lives out because we are filled to the brim, overflowing with you. We give you all praise, all honor and glory. We pray this in the sweet name of your Son, whose name is Jesus, and He is the Christ. Amen. Bah.